Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Thanks for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. It's Thursday, February 1st. State lawmakers are weighing an additional request to pay private attorneys to fight a youth-led climate lawsuit. We hear about continued community efforts to try and keep little fire ants from spreading here on Oahu as we mark the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act. And a new exhibit honoring Japanese immigrants on Lanai opens. We'll learn more about their contributions to the history of the island and how the Lahaina fire impacted tourism there. Plus, competitive ballroom dancing gets the spotlight in Waikiki this Saturday. We talked to one of the organizers and a judge. They are championship partners with news of a new dance studio in town. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Eyebrows are being raised by a $2 million request to fight a climate change lawsuit filed by Hawaii's youth. Lawmakers grilled the state attorney general over the budget request when it came to light last week. HPR reporter Savannah harriman Pote joins us to talk about the legal battle. Good morning, Savannah. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so this lawsuit, it's headed for trial this summer? Correct. Uh, the state, specifically representation for the Department of Transportation, um, in coordination with the Attorney General's office, and 14 youth plaintiffs and their representation, which is Earth Justice, are in mediation. So if they were to come to an agreement, then the case would not go to trial, but it is scheduled for late June this year. And there was a little bit of a kerfuffle at a joint Ways and Means Judiciary hearing at the Senate last week because the state budget has put in a request for an additional $2.25 million in order to continue to fight this case. Okay, yeah. So I, I can imagine they're saying, oh, ka-ching, you know, it's going to cost taxpayers. <laughs> yeah, so I did reach out to Director Ed Sniffen after the meeting to ask him about one the department's stance on the case and two what the money was necessary for and he said first and foremost that his um, position is that the the case is unnecessary because the department is taking aggressive action to reduce emissions the DOT's position is we are working towards ensuring that we meet the 2030 and 2045 clean energy goals and from that perspective we don't see the need for the case. Um, the state's still ready and willing to, to meet to settle the case, to make sure we work towards uh, that end together with the plaintiffs rather than going through this, this lengthy court, court case. Because in the end, whether um, the plaintiffs are successful or not, whether this case goes to trial or not, the DOT and the state is committed to meeting those 2030 and 2045 clean energy goals. Yeah, well... Uh, we do have a lot of work uh, to get to those uh, goals. Absolutely. And so the concern on, on some lawmakers, specifically Senator Carl Rhodes, was, well, why are we spending money on a lawsuit about whether or not we're meeting our climate goals rather than just spending that money on programs and policies that will help us cut emissions? So Carl Rhodes brought up these concerns 
in front of State Attorney General Ann Lopez in that info briefing last week. You can hear a little bit of their exchange here. I mean, the Hawaii State Energy Office came out with a report saying that Hawaii is not is not on track to meet its emission limits, goals indicating that much more needs to be done at a faster pace, which having looked at the 70-page complaint, looks to me is like exactly what the, the plaintiffs and Navahine are asking for. So even if, well, what are we trying to get? Are we? I mean, it, it looks to me like the best we could, the state can, I mean, not, I, don't, I wouldn't call it the best. It looks like what the state is trying to do is just put off the day where we have to do this stuff but we're going to have to do it anyway because that's what mother nature is throwing at us at this point absolutely that's what we want so why are we, we want to achieve so why are we stalling so it did get a little heated as you can hear in that exchange and actually donovan de cruz who's the chair of ways and means and he was overseeing that info, info briefing actually to call a brief um, recess because there were folks there who were holding up signs advocating for climate action, basically asking the same question. Why are we spending money on this case when we could be spending money fighting climate change? Yeah, I mean, you don't really want to just pay the attorneys if you can use that $2 million, uh, for programs. Exactly. So this is still something that's going to come up as the budget bills head throughout the Senate. Technically, Ways and Means and Finance will get the final sign-off, but the Transportation Committees can make recommendations. And this is something that's a little bit confusing when I was looking into this story. The budget request was put in by the Department of Transportation, so it's technically not coming out of the State Attorney General's office, even though they are closely involved. Um, Senator Chris Lee was in that hearing, and he had some questions as well. He says he hasn't had the chance to speak to DOT directly, but he does plan to bring it up. And then his counterpart on the House side, Rep. Chris Todd, didn't respond to comment. And when I followed up with Carl Rhodes after the hearing, he said he thinks his committee should get a say too, given the level of the Attorney General's office invol involvement. And if it came to his committee, he ultimately wouldn't support it. But if you ask David Tarnas in the House, who chairs the Judiciary and Hawaiian Affairs Committee there, he says, he doesn't blame the attorney general. The attorney general has, an, has the responsibility to represent the state, um, and she's just doing her job. Yeah, um, but it, it is a concern, and, you know, uh, as we heard Carl Rhodes mention about the uh, uh, report uh, from the Energy Office, you know, you reported on that, right, saying that uh, Hawaii is not on track to meet its goals, so we have to really step up our game. Absolutely. And when you dig into that report, it goes into transportation, which includes aviation, marine and ground transport quite a bit. It's the largest emitting category collectively in Hawaii. And those emissions have been trending up since 2010, which is the basis again of this lawsuit, right? The plaintiffs are arguing that they have a constitutional right that's protected in Hawaii's constitution to a safe and healthful environment. And because we haven't seen a decline in transportation emissions, DOT is violating their constitutional right. So that's what's going to be the basis of the case should it go to trial in the summer. And you did uh, check back with uh, Earth Justice, right? And the I did speak to Earth Justice as well. Mm -hmm. um, they're currently in mediation again, and those youth plaintiffs are being deposed. So the outside law firm is currently under retainment, is working with the Attorney General's office. They're going through the process. 
of deposing each of the each of the youth plaintiffs, um, they are also bringing both sides are bringing forth expert witnesses on each side. And when you ask about what the funding is going to be used for, the attorney general's office says six hundred and forty five thousand dollars has been spent on the case so far. And a lot of that has gone towards the amount of discovery um, that is required based on what the plaintiffs are asking for. But if you talk to Earth Justice, their concern is with the um, their concern is with the price tag that basically comes with bringing in this outside law firm. Well, it's just a fascinating uh, approach to this climate change problem to have the youth step up, uh, at, you know, to challenge this in court, uh, because we have seen cities across the country, uh, you know, file uh, legal briefs in court, you know, against the oil companies too. Absolutely. And so this is one of a couple of youth-led climate lawsuits at the state level. There's another one in Montana where youth plaintiffs actually won their case last fall. I asked Earth Justice if that would have any bearing on this case. And they said, while, you know, it is good momentum, our case is so based in the specifics of Hawaii constitutional law that what we're talking about is very unique to our state. And this is also, to my understanding, one of the few cases, perhaps the only case that's specifically looking at the Department of Transportation's responsibility when it comes to emissions. And when you talk to um, Ed Sniffen, I mean, did he talk about those aggressive moves that they were taking to reduce emissions? Yes, so they have an um, energy savings plan. They talked about trans transferring over their fleet to more energy vehicles. and. Ed Sniffen also really talked about how you have to balance in Department of Transportation, making sure that solutions are accessible and clean, but also affordable. People's private transportation needs to switch over to electric vehicles, but that can be cost prohibitive for some people. Yeah, interesting issue. But thanks so much, Savannah. Of course. Good talking to you, Catherine. All right. You take care. That was HBR Savannah Harriman Pote talking to us about the latest development over a climate change lawsuit expected to go to trial later this summer. To mark the 50th anniversary of the Endangered Species Act, there are efforts underway to combat invasive species. Army Garrison Hawaii, in conjunction with other military branches, will be dedicating additional funding this year to help in the fight against destructive pests. That's where Kapua Cavello works as manager for the Natural, uh, Natural Resource Program at Schofield Barracks, which is dedicated to propagating and protecting native species found on military land. But Cavello is also active in her community of Kahalu, which has turned its focus to the threat of the little fire ant. Many new sites in Windward Oahu have been reported in the past year. State agriculture officials this week held a hearing to change its rules when it comes to dealing with invasive species, putting teeth in the law to deal with plant nurseries that may be infested with little fire ants and may be spreading it with the sale of their plants. Close to 300 people submitted testimony, including Cavello. I think the concerns of the community are that there's not enough personnel, paid personnel, to be keeping ahead of this pest, and that the little fire ant has the ability to, it will change our relationship with Aina. I mean, as a Hawaiian, this pest is like my worst nightmare, right? I'm I'm a person that's 
spends time in my yard harvesting fruit and growing kalo and love being outdoors. So people who are outdoors and love being outdoors, having Oahu infested with little fire ant is going to completely change our relationship with Aina. We, we should mention, you know, your day job, you're there uh, doing what you can to protect native species. So to have an invasive yeah. like this is, yeah, terrible. In my backyard, exactly. Yeah, I'm surrounded um, in Kahalu'u by, uh, by three sort of nodes um, <laughs> where there are little fire ants. And then in the neighboring community in, in Waihe'e, we've been partnering there with community members to try to get ahead of that infestation too. So yeah, so it's, it's definitely close to home. You know, I do this for my day job and I certainly don't want it affecting my, you know, my family and my, my pets and my, my ability to freely utilize my, you know, my land and enjoy my, uh, my home. Well, I think, you know, we have seen the cases pop up and, and it is, you know, several years before, to monitor a site when an infestation mm-hmm. is discovered. And we have seen yep. them pop up repeatedly in places like Mauna Wili, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Lani Kai, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, and some of these areas are, you know, in your neck of the woods, right, wetter areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these yep. ants can be found in dry areas as well. I think little fire ant can be, so it's often moved around in potted plants. Right. So, so the, the big problem at hand right now is that there's no way for those for people who are knowingly um, selling infested material um, for them to be for that problem to be corrected. Right. So so that just exponentially creates these places where you're right that, you know, they have to be first controlled, right, treated for a year. It's um, every six weeks. So it's eight treatments over the period of a year until you get no detection, right? So, um, for example, our sites that we're treating are five, ten acres, something like that in size, some even bigger. And so that requires, you know, we're, we're pulling together as neighbors and, com- and a community to, to do these treatments together, right? So we're, we're funding the supplies and materials and the equipment, barring equipment where we can to actually control the ants. And so that's, that's for a year. And then after that, it's, you know, perpetual monitoring to make sure you don't get reinfested or, you know, you haven't missed a spot. So, and that's, you know, with putting out the peanut butter chopsticks, fairly easy, but it's definitely, you know, a commitment and there's a, there's a timeline that you have to stick to. So, you know, the holidays over Christmas are difficult to get people to come out but we really have a good head of steam controlling Kahalu'u. I think we're four treatments in, so we're halfway there. And Waihe'e is, I think, two treatments in, so or two, two or three, actually, treatments in. So, so we're making progress in these communities, and I think other folks are really, you know, taking it, um, trying to work head-on to do it themselves because it's that important to them. But for eradication on the whole island, we need we need paid staff to be doing this, right? Not everybody has people who work in conservation as professionally to help get it all together and organize things. <laughs> We're an exception. <laughs> I, I know when I've talked with John Morgan over at Kuloa Ranch, you know, they're battling um, an infestation over there. Yeah. But he has workers, and, you yeah. know, he was trying to do the right thing and plant natives and brought some things in from Big Island, and guess mm-hmm. what? Voila, mm-hmm. you hit little yeah. fire ant. So, uh, yeah, yeah it, it takes those kinds of, you know, resources to make a difference. Yeah, dedicated resources we need. And it sounds like the Department of Defense REPI program is, is funding some invasive species control 
projects and Little Fire Ant uh, crew is supplementation is one of those. So I think that's going to be coming online sometime this spring. But other than that, you know, the state legislature needs to step up and the city and county needs to step up to to really, um, you know, achieve eradication on Oahu. We do not want to be, I mean, the, the alternative is right. We continuously apply pesticides. We continuously apply this bait to protect our property. And it's a continual cost to homeowners. And, it, you know, I mean, it's, something we'd like to apply, get rid of them, and not have to continuously, you know, apply this to our environment. Although that being said, the the baits are fairly benign. (laughs) Well, the hearing uh, that uh, you attended, I mean, I know the concern is uh, to have some rules in place to make sure that, you know, there's some transparency in these nurseries that are infested, that there's some kind of notice to the public so they check their stock if, uh, you know, they're Mm going to buy plants. I 100% support the amendment to to the rule to, you know, make it possible for Department of Ag to enforce a quarantine, you know, or mandatory treatment of the materials before they are sold. That being said, there's a lot you can do as an individual, right? You can ask those hard questions when you go to the garden shop or when you're working with a landscaping team. Are you buying clean plants? Can you can you show me documentation that you're working with, you know, a clean industry member? Also, you know, people who hire yard folks, you know, I mean, that's, that's a concern about, you know, if they're moving any material from one house resident that residence that's infested to another. So, so ask those tough questions and have those conversations and let people know that you as a consumer think it's important and value their, um, you know, their due diligence. In, in that regard and that, you know, and everybody can pull together to um, to prevent more infestations and for us then to try to just kind of get a hold of the situation as it is right now, and, which is hard enough. <laughs> and what does this mean to you as someone who works out there in, in the boonies, you know, uh, protecting our natives? I mean, to have an invasive, a destructive invasive mm-hmm. take hold. I mean, share with our listeners what that means to you. Yeah, you know, if we if we can't control a pest, if if we don't value it enough to control a pest that's affecting our homes, our economy, you know, from the tourism standpoint, our livelihood, our relationship with Aina, um, then it, it um, yeah, then the idea that people will do it just to protect endangered species is uh, is unlikely, right? And so. I mean, of course, we want to keep, you know, we want to keep it out of urban areas and affecting humans and our lives. But the, the worst case scenario is we, we, we fail in that and then it moves into the mountains and invasive ants are a significant pest to our native insects, right? We've got endangered insects like damselflies um, that are dragonflies, but they're smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got the yellow-faced bees that are important pollinators to native um, to so native plants. These ants could be just another threat to those uh, endangered species. Exactly. We don't need any more threats. We have we have enough. We're we're already in triage for many of these species. Right. The coconut rhinoceros beetle. Last time we talked, I was saying that we found the first damage to our you know our native lolu uh, Hawaiian fan palm population at Makua. And yeah, and so that's a really sad story, right? Yeah. When we when we potentially you know have extinctions or change the the ability of that species to exist on the landscape in the way that it should, um, and have to put it into gardens, then that's you know that's that's a failure on our part. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. No, no. But yeah, it just underscores just w- the work that you do. But thank you. Thank you so much, yeah. Kapua, for what you You're do. Welcome. And um, yeah, we'll just uh, keep on fighting. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much, Catherine. You take care. That was Kapua Cavello, who is working in her community of Kahalu'u on uh, Windward, Oahu, to combat the spread of the destructive little fire end. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Today we're rummaging through some favorite recipes to test your knowledge of a popular local dessert. The dish shows up regularly at holiday parties and family potlucks. The wiggly, jiggly, jewel-hued layers of strawberry, lemon, lime, and blueberry jello are fun and easy to eat. A treat for the eyes and taste buds. However, if you're the one making rainbow jello, it takes some patience and room in the refrigerator for a 9 by 3 13-inch pan. It's an easy recipe. Prep time takes about 15 minutes, but it'll take about three hours to build up. The reason is that each layer of jello has to set before the next one can be poured. If you work too fast, the heat from the liquid mixture may melt the layer underneath. Although it's the colors in this dish that make it a star, what really makes it pop are the white layers between the colored ones. For today's quiz, we want to know what is used to make the white layer in Hawaiian rainbow jello. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right scores an HPR reusable tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing parents and children experiencing homelessness with opportunities to secure housing, including Family Promise of Hawaii. NareetHawaii.com. years, Lanai's tourism industry was largely dependent on the ferry that ran out of Lahaina Harbor, which was devastated by the August wildfires. Now that ferry service has resumed out of Ma'alaya Harbor, 15 miles away, the Lanai Culture and Heritage Center is hoping their new exhibit can help draw in visitors. It's called uh, Kodomo no Tameni and pays tribute to Japanese immigrants who came to the island for work in the late 1800s. The conversations Russell Subiono talked with the center's executive director, Shelley Preza, about the exhibit and the impact of the Maui fires. <laughs> 
So Kodomo Tameni, honoring the legacy of Lenai's Japanese community, is our first ever temporary exhibit. We thought it would be a great opportunity to try to utilize the space that we currently have, which was the back room, the plantation room, and to showcase another facet of Lenai's history that maybe hadn't been so highlighted before. And so that's kind of where the Japanese exhibit came to be out of this idea that we as a nonprofit, as a culture and heritage center, are meant to honor and preserve Lanai's history. And that's, you know, from traditional Hawaiian times all the way through plantation times. But that I think sometimes people mistake us as only being, you know, perpetuating Hawaiian values or perpetuating Filipino culture, because that's what people, when they think of Lanai, it's, you know, predominantly Filipino today. But I think a lot of people don't realize that our roots are multicultural. And as a plantation town, just like other places in Hawaii, it's just multicultural communities, right? And so the Japanese community was very robust in the plantation era. They were amongst the first wave of immigrants who came to Lanai in search of better lives. And so to really acknowledge and kind of just highlight that community and their contributions to our town and our island today, I thought was really important. If people come to the exhibit, I imagine they're going to see some artifacts, maybe some photographs. Can you talk about what's being featured in the exhibit? You know, we have the largest collection of Lenai-focused archival materials in the world. And so it was kind of a nice rediscovery, I think, for us of what we had in our own archive because, you know, we've been a caretaker for so many people. You know, they've donated family collections. They've donated things of their grandparents. And we take a lot of pride in the fact that we are keeping these, you know, family treasure safe, but also they all they all are a part of telling the story of Lanai. And so this was a really great exercise for us, I think, in just taking a look at what we already had in our archive donated from, you know, Japanese families. So it was funny because the exhibit we kind of had in mind a smaller scale thing. Maybe we redo this one case. And then the more that we were we were pulling our artifacts, you know, photos out. And the more that one of our employees was really spending time cataloging all of those things into our archival software, we realized we would be doing the story a disservice if we tried to confine, you know, this Japanese history of Lanai to a single glass case. And so what we did was we tried to make use of almost the entire back room of the culture center. And so I can walk you through a few of those sections if that would be yeah, good. Yeah, that, that'd, be, that'd be great. Okay. So in one corner of the exhibit, it focuses on a man named Tokumatsu Murayama, which I think a lot of Lenai people, they might not know who he is, but I feel like with this exhibit, we're hoping that it'll generate some awareness of some of these key figures in our Japanese community from 100 years ago. And so when James Dole purchased the island in 1922, with the intent of establishing a pineapple plantation, a lot of folks don't realize that Ranching was the main industry at that point, and there was only a very small community up at Ko'ele. And so what we know today as Lanai City didn't exist at that time. And so in order to you know, bring about at its peak the largest pineapple plantation in the world, you need to develop infrastructure and develop you know, places for people to live and infrastructure to support a community to run the plantation. And so at that point, there was a wave of Japanese immigrants who came to Lanai basically to build Lanai City to build all the infrastructure that was necessary for this new plantation community. And so Tokumatsu Murayama was one of the important stonemasons of his time in the 1920s. So they helped to build the Kaiholana Reservoir, the Mauna Lea Tunnels, which was helping to access water at that time. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that he and his fellow Japanese workers were also the ones who constructed Komalapau Harbor, which is our 
still to this day our main port of call for Lanai. And the stone wall that still exists there right on the edge overlooking the entire west side, that was constructed by Tokumatsu Murayama and his fellow Japanese workers. And we have a picture in our exhibit of Tokumatsu leaning against that stone wall where there is a stone inscription that says T. Murayama, AD 1925. It was to commemorate their real achievement of engineering. You know, that that wall has lasted <laughs> almost 100 years at this point. So I think it was a really cool way of, you know, highlighting these really deep histories of how our island came to be, how our community came to be, but people might not realize that he existed or the, how instrumental he was in the infrastructure of Lanai. When you started to put this together, I imagine a lot of the artifacts and photos and things you had in storage, I imagine they probably haven't seen the light of day for quite some time. How long have your organization been collecting these items? Has it been a few years or decades? It's been, you know, pretty much since our origin in 2007. Our co-founder, Kipa Mali, he really built up the foundation of our archive, collecting not just oral histories from Lanai people, but also, yeah, family collections, things that help to tell the story of Lanai. And so for some of these items, you know, we've had them for over a decade, some a little less. And I think what helped to spark this idea of honoring our Japanese community was actually an accession that I took in last year from the Matsumoto family because their matriarch had passed away and I went to go pick up six handmade Japanese dolls that she had crafted and that were in her house and they were in these really nice you know plastic circular cases but you know really well taken care of and then part of the grant that helped to fund this endeavor was also to bring a textile conservator and take a look at the collection of Japanese dolls that we had that were handcrafted, not just from this family, but from other families who had donated in the past and to figure out, yeah, which ones were the best ones to be able to display for people and also to create a plan so that we can make sure that we give them the care that they they deserve in the coming years. In order for folks outside of Lanai to come and see this new exhibit, they'd have to either fly in or catch the ferry. And I know that the Maui side departure site for the ferry is now at Maalaya Harbor Mm -hmm. after the wildfires wiped out the Lahaina Harbor. How have you seen tourism on Lanai impacted by the Lahaina fires? So when it happened, it was devastating, I think. I mean, for all of us in Hawaii and beyond, but for Lanai people, I think, especially because we just had such a deep connection to Lahaina. One of our lifelines, the ferry, went in and out of there. Like my entire life, you know, we would go to Maui, we'd land in Lahaina, and then go do our business if we were going to Kahului or wherever it was. So it was very shocking. I think it was really great to see the community come together and do our best to support our, you know, Ohana in Lahaina. And on the tourism end, definitely, I, at least personally, I could see the numbers just drop of the day visitors. Because I think, I mean, Lanai can be difficult to get to, but the ferry was one of the easiest ways, I think, for day visitors to make their way over to Lanai, just, you know, come up to town for a bit and then go back to Maui for those who weren't able to stay at a hotel, you know, stay overnight or stay the weekend. And so definitely in our museum numbers, at least we could see that stark drop right after the fires and everything that had happened. And I think everyone was being very sensitive to, to the fact that, I mean, yeah, expeditions wasn't running. And I know there were, you know, there was talks in Maui too about not encouraging lots of tourists to come back at that time when they were trying to figure out, you know, the the recovery plan and making sure that those families and that community was taken care of. But definitely we could observe here that there was a decrease in the number of tourists coming to Lanai at that point in time. In the days following the wildfires, we saw lots of videos on social media 
of boats from Molokai bringing food and supplies into Lahaina to help with the relief effort. Have you heard of any stories of Lanai folks extending similar aid to Maui? I'm sorry, maybe I'm not the, I'm not the best person to speak to if anyone was taking, you know, like boats over like how Mo- Molokai folks were doing. But I did see on the ground here the community really rallied around Lahaina. And so there were just lots of different drives and opportunities for folks to to donate. So I know Pulama Lanai coordinated a big shipment to, to get to, to Maui. And I know at that point it was also not just, you know, sending whatever, but also having someone there to receive and to be able to distribute it to the the necessary organization. So I know that there were a lot of different groups, not just, you know, Pulama, but also like just community folks, families, you know, um, trying to organize and rally around getting donations. And I think because we have that deep connection to Lahaina, so many people were so affected. People had family out there, you know, so it was very much a personal thing for us here on Lanai. Governor Green has made it clear to potential visitors that Maui is open for business. I imagine in some ways, maybe a lot of ways, Lanai's tourism depends on Maui's tourism. What would you like to say to any potential visitors listening about coming to Lanai? Well, now I can speak to, you know, we're coming into 2024. I do see that there are more opportunities to come to Lanai. I think some folks think that it's rather inaccessible or, you know, especially for local people. If you don't know someone here, you're not necessarily going to just buy a plane ticket or a ferry ticket to just come over for the day. But I will say, you know, there there is now another airline option for folks to come visit. Um, like you said, Expeditions Ferry, they're operating out of Ma'alaya now. So um, they are, I think, seeming like they got back to a regular schedule. And so I know for the small businesses here around Dill Park, I know that they do count on some of the day visitors who come to the island, not just the ones who stay over the weekend. So I would encourage, I mean, I know you're asking specifically about visitors from elsewhere, but I would even say Kama'aina. You know, I think we we love to have other local um, people come to visit Lanai because I think a lot of folks who've grown up in Hawaii have probably not made the trip over to Lanai. And especially for this new exhibit that we have at the museum, I think it is a really if I do say to myself, like, I think it's a really cool <laughs> tribute to the Japanese legacy on Lanai, which is part of Hawaii's greater story. And I would really encourage, you know, our Kamaina folks to come and visit not just the museum, but obviously, you know, to patronize other small businesses that are around Lanai, because we always do welcome those people to come and learn more about our hometown and the community that we live in. Shelly Preza, thank you so much for your time. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was the Lanai Culture and Heritage Center's Shelley Preza talking with HPR's Russell Subiono about the new uh, Kodomo Natameni exhibit. It pays tribute to the uh, contributions of the Japanese agreement, uh, immigrants to the island's history. We will have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website after the show. Now it's time to dish out the answer to our backyard quiz. The fun, jiggly, layered dessert that we call Hawaiian rainbow jello is a party favorite. It's simple and visually appealing, and so many enjoy uh, making it for family potlucks. 
An important kitchen tip is patience. The gelatin for each of the layers is dissolved in hot water, so it requires setting and cooling for each layer to build up on the next. If the jello hasn't set right, you'll end up with a cloudy mixture instead of the distinctive lines that make each of the colors pop. The recipe usually calls for four packages of jello, usually blue, green, yellow, and red, but you can customize it to your taste. As for the ingredients that make up the white layers that se- uh, separate the colorful layers, well, it's made from a mixture of Knox unflavored unf- uh, gelatin, sweetened condensed milk, and water, which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. I didn't know that, but. Angela from Honolulu did, and thanks to Kathy of Onalicious Hawaii for inspiring today's question. If you have one to share, write to talk back at hawaiipublicradio.org. Are you interested in working for one of Hawaii's most dynamic media organizations? HPR is looking to hire a full-time board operator with experience in digital media production and broadcasting. If you're a quick study, possess strong time management skills, have a dynamic on-air presence, and if you enjoy new and interesting workplace challenges, HPR wants to hear from you. Visit hawaiipublicradio.org jobs to learn more. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. This weekend, 1,200 dancers will descend on Waikiki to take part in the Aloha Ball. It's a ballroom dance competition, one of two held each year in the islands and sanctioned by the National Dance Council of America. Tony Meredith is one of the organizers. His roots are in Hawaii and Samoa, but a move to California and an introduction to the hustle when he was a teen led him to the world of ballroom dancing. He's made it into a career. That passion cultipa- uh, catapulted him to win the world championship in Latin dance along with his partner, Melanie LaPatton. Both work as uh, choreographers in the entertainment business. Meredith recently returned to Hawaii to open a new dance studio, Aloha Dance Company, to share his love of ballroom dancing. He credits his cousin for teaching him the hustle back in the 70s and helping him find his love for dance in those early days. I continued on this path. I just loved it. I mean, because coming from the islands with the music and the rhythms and always movement and, you know, it was was kind of natural for me. And now she has like five children and I continued on. I met Melanie LaPatton. We both moved to San Diego at the same time. Same day, same year, actually. And what got you started in ballroom dancing? My dad was a dancer. He used to compete in the nightclubs uh, like the Copacabana and the Latin Quarter. But I didn't know any of that until he passed away. I was living in New York, went to school in New York, and then I graduated high school early to take care of some things, then I moved to San Diego to visit my sister. It was supposed to be for a week, but I stayed there for 14 years where I met Tony and just at a little ice skating ring in San Diego, and my sister pushed me to go. I didn't want to go. I thought there's going to be old people there, and they'll be playing waltz music, and that's not the case when I got there. But I fell in love with waltz anyway after a while. But yes, that's why I got started. Then I started teaching, assisting in the class and teaching, and then Met Tony Meredith, the hustle king of San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mentioned to you, uh, you know, earlier this morning that when I saw that film, Strictly Ballroom, it was just like, wow, you yeah. know, it just opened up a whole other um, yeah, dimension. Yeah, and that's the extreme edge of ballroom dancing. You know, the competitive part of that is it requires the same concept as um, ice skating, you know, in the Olympics. And we actually thought it would be in the Olympics, ballroom dancing. So our mindset was to really be the best we could possibly be in every possible way with nutrition and activity exercise and taking classes and yeah you're athletes all forms. yeah mm-hmm. it gets to that point where you really have to commit 100 percent. so you've returned a home to hawaii and you are starting up uh, a yes. place where you can teach people how to dance and yes. you've got a big competition coming up yes it's called well the company i'm starting is uh the aloha ballroom company and we normally do like three types of events each year and they're in, usually we hold them in theaters and stages and anybody can participate we have a team of teachers and coaches that kind of nurture the idea of the concept of this the production it, it, it's just a phenomenal night with costumes and music and it's drama. The choreography is done and you have the best yeah. teachers. And can I just mention something about Tony Meredith? Sure. <laughs> I'm so happy for him and I'm happy for you guys because you get to have Tony Meredith on your island and he loves the islands and he's always wanted to be on the islands and he's always loved nature and trees and water and I'm really happy that he's back here. But you guys are so lucky to have this. He is the most talented, not because, you know, but because he's actually the most talented person that I know, the best dancer and the most creative person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of people and we've been around the world many times, but seriously, he's amazing. And I just hope everybody calls because it, you know, it really can change your life. And he's the perfect person to do this here. He's it's starting here for the Aloha Ballroom Company. company. <laughs> <laughs> well, now you are going to be a judge at this competition. I'm judging this competition, yes, from New York and I'll be coming back to help a little bit with the company and the competition is called Aloha Ball and you can get the information on alohaballdance.com. But yes, it's going to be two gala nights Friday and Saturday, February 2nd and 3rd and we have just a so much of a performance evening. We've got uh, over 1,200 entries. We've got 100 people from the mainland, 200 locals that are performing and competing all day long. We have a show, a professional show. We have a team match. And it's just going to, it's like walking into Strictly Ballroom when you were watching that show. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is amazing because you see the intensity and the creativity and the athleticism mm. yes. you know all kind of all combined in, into this dance yes do you dance no would you, <laughs> would you like to start, <laughs> start somewhere hand. right yes <laughs> well yes. okay so how do people participate in this well right now a registration is probably closed because we actually have to pre-register how many people are going to be in what divisions what age categories there's four different divisions there's a standard smooth latin and rhythm and then different age categories a, B, C, D, E, up to, you know, a senior even. And then there's amateur couples. So by now it's hard to register. However, those that want to spectate, you can certainly get a ticket for the daytime or even for the evening gala. And if you go to that website, alohaballdance.com, you can get all the information there for your tickets. Okay, and then this will be at the Sheraton Hotel. Sheraton Waikiki, yes, February 2nd and 3rd. Okay, and what are you most looking forward to this weekend? I just love seeing from all ages, from 10 years old, 8 years old, to senior citizens dance and the costumes and the music is always fabulous. It's just an uplifting 
time for everyone. It's very supportive. There's a lot of yelling and screaming people's numbers. and Yeah, there's a lot of great support. Yes, and great social dancing in between the competitions and the, you know, Yeah, I mean, people like what they see yeah. and they applaud. Yes, yes. Yes, that's right. We also have Mike Lewis, his band is playing. We're going to have that, and we're going to have a Tahitian show. It's our 10-year anniversary, so this event has been ongoing for 10 years. We first started in Kona. Just to, you know, kind of like check out the islands, and then we eight years later we moved it to Oahu. Is it in, in a ballroom, I imagine? Oh, my gosh, <laughs> it's in a big ballroom, you know, and just like the floor has to be 60 by 80, and That's there's lights and cameras and judges, and it's a, it's a spectacular spectacular. Okay, so it's a big deal. It's a big, big deal. deal. All right. Anything else that you would like to add? Um, just – you know, how you've seen this art grow. Ballroom dancing has always been there. People just don't know about it. And through time, it's gotten more and more publicity. But anyone who starts usually doesn't stop because it's so wonderful. It just brings out the best in people. It allows them to find a new side of themselves, a better side of themselves. It allows them to grow physically and spiritually. I mean, it's been amazing for me. I I don't know why everyone, I can't get it why everyone just doesn't ballroom dance i mean it's so amazing and it changes people's lives they really come in one way and think they'll never be able to do this or that but they can and they do and it's wonderful to see the transition from one personality to bring out the best in those people and then you know you folks have competed together for so long i mean share with our listeners what it was like let's say when you won the first championship for me, it was so euphoric because it had probably taken us 15 years, and 12 of those years we were in second place with five different champions ahead of us. So at the moment of victory... I cried on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard to describe because it's sort of like such an accomplishment that was so important to us, and I think it was just doing you know striving to be the best you could be and then just getting that acknowledgement that yes you're the winners my mom and dad were behind us the whole way melanie's mom and dad were just you know they were supporting us the whole way behind you know every year they were like oh darn it's like oh and just sometimes just by one point oh my gosh a fraction of a point and then when we called them they were like woohoo they were so excited so it was it was good for me and also good for them and you know, the island of Hawaii and the island of Samoa, Mm. you know, it was just, it's it's been an incredible journey. And then to continue it on, we have gone into film and television, like I said, and we continue to work with celebrities for their, I'm gonna go shoot one next week for, with uh, Vanessa Williams, uh, just to help her choreograph, you know, choreographing. And so it's an ongoing journey, love journey, aloha journey. And one more thing, Mm -hmm. you know, children from a young age can start ballroom dancing and guys, men, they think, oh, ballroom dancing, that's not for me. But I'm telling you, when the couples come in, the guy likes it more than the, you know, the female. No, they both love it. And it's something they can take your wife on a date or something new to do. It's exciting. And you meet new people. And then dancing with a partner to fabulous music and knowing how to dance together is a whole nother dimension. Yeah. So are there any couch potatoes out there? Maybe this is for you. It really (laughs) is. It really is. Yes. Well, thank you both for for coming down here. Catherine, it's uh, been a pleasure, and we really enjoyed speaking with you, and thank you for um, inviting us to share this love of ours with Hawaii. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you. 
And that was Tony Meredith and Melanie LaPatton, who world champions for ballroom Latin dancing. They work as choreographers for many celebrities in the film and television business, including RuPaul and Vanessa Williams. The Aloha Ball competition is on Saturday with an opening gala set for Friday night at the Shirt in Waikiki. Look for links for tickets on the conversation page of our website after the show. Perhaps, perhaps, perhaps. If you can't make your mind up, we'll never get started. Well, that does it for us today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanaho show featuring locals and leadership. Give us some feedback. Call or talk back line 808-792-8217 or email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find the po- conversation podcast on our website or places like Spotify or Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.